This is the ACR 22 Daily Podcast Review featuring the Room Now faculty as they present to you their favorite abstracts and presentations from the meeting. Enjoy. Greetings from Philadelphia. I'm Dr. Rachel Tate from West Palm Beach, Florida, and I am here representing Team PSA to give you the best of PSA from ACR 2022 for today, which is Saturday, November 12th of 2022. So I'm going to give you two abstracts today. The first is abstract number 387, entitled Sleep Quality in Patients with Psoriatic Arthritis and Its Relationship with Activity and Comorbidity. So this was by Dr. Martinez et al. It's a cross-sectional study, nearly 250 psoriatic arthritis patients, and the group looked at multiple, multiple measures. But one that they included, which is really interesting, is a PSQI questionnaire regarding sleep. So ultimately, their analysis showed that four out of six psoriatic arthritis patients self-report poor sleep quality. This was mainly found in our female patients, but it was also associated with increased emphysitis, increased disease activity reporting, in addition to fatigue, anxiety, and depression. Now, I don't think that's necessarily what's so interesting about this subject. Here's what's really interesting about this actual study. Only half of these patients, again, self-reported poor sleep quality, were on medications in an effort to improve their sleep. They, we didn't have any discussion regarding non-pharmacological interventions for these patients, but we all know that sleep is very important. It's also quite complex. So while this study doesn't share the whole um, kind of paradigm of sleep regarding our patients, what it does, it does point out for me and for our team is that we need more data regarding sleep independent of disease, but we also need to be discussing and integrating sleep options for our patients in clinical practice and working that into our clinical repertoire, whether that be pharmacological and, um, or non-pharmacological interventions for patients. So just kind of keep that as a clinical pearl in the back of your mind. Our next abstract, is number 377 entitled Differences in Early Onset Versus Late Onset Psoriatic Arthritis. Now this is data from the Respondia and the Regisponsor studies. This was by Dr. Puche La Rubia et al. And the objective of this particular study was to understand disease differences as they may be related to early, age less than 40, versus late onset, age greater than 60, for our psoriatic arthritis patients. Now, as I mentioned before, this is actually an observational study looking at Respondia and the Registrar registries out of Spain, again, nearly 250 patients. What they ultimately found was that the late onset patients, so again, those over age 60, predominantly were male. They had higher structural damage at baseline from their disease. They had elevated VASPs, and of course, they had more upper extremity arthritis. That's interesting, but what they also found was that those patients were less likely to have sacroiliitis and enthesitis. So kind of showing a different spectrum of disease than we had maybe thought previously. So also interestingly, early versus late disease onset had no effect on the overall quality of a patient's life, the disease activity itself, or changes with treatment options. So this is the first day of ACR 2022, and this is our day one report for Team PSA. We're absolutely looking forward to tomorrow. We're gonna to have more PSA specific abstracts. And as always, 
For more ACR 2022 coverage, log into roomnow.com. Hi, this is Eric Dine uh, coming from New Jersey here live in Philadelphia at Room, at Room Now at the ACR first day of the conference. And I'm going to talk to you today about Abstract 0374, uh, which was a poster presentation looking at the utility of the Bazdai scores uh, in women during pregnancy. I think this is a very useful study because um, traditionally ankylosing spondylitis has been understudied in women and especially now in pregnancy to understand the metrics of it a little bit more. In the first trimester of pregnancy, it, it holds up relatively well. Uh, the most important utility of it is the morning stiffness, both in terms of severity and then a little bit less so in terms of duration of the morning stiffness. When we get into the second and third trimesters of pregnancy, of course, there's lots of mechanical changes uh, with the pregnant woman at the time. So some of the Bazdai score utility will shift. And so fatigue, back pain ratings are not as useful at that time. But we find that the morning stiffness scores of duration and severity still hold up as useful markers. So this is very useful uh, to bring to clinical practice as you, you take care of pregnant women who, who are uh, also with ankylosing spondylitis and deciding on treatment choices. Lots more coverage coming from Rune now. Have a wonderful day. Hi, I'm Dr. Rachel Tate from West Palm Beach, Florida, and I am coming to you from ACR 2022 in Philly, and I have the distinct pleasure of meeting one of my Twitter friends in person, Dr. Angus Worthing. And um, Angus, thank you so much for being here with us today. You're welcome. Great to meet you in real life. Yeah, I know. It seems like we should have done this a few years ago. <laughs> well, I have a couple of questions for you, and, and something that we don't really talk about a lot in room now is kind of the legislative update and what's going on in the Hill, specifically regarding policy. Can you give us a little bit of insight on in what you talked about today at ACR? Sure. Happy to. Thanks, Rachel. Um, so the one thing you need to remember right now that's going on on Capitol Hill, besides the election, which is big, is that U.S. physicians are about to be cut four and a half percent in their reimbursement for seeing Medicare patients as of January 1st, if Congress doesn't act. So this is something we talked about a lot at the advocacy session today and how luckily the House of Representatives has a bill in place to stop that cut. Uh, the Senate also needs to act and there is one piece of must pass legislation that will come out of Congress hopefully before December 15th that's um, continuing government funding, probably a continuing resolution to keep the government open. And we want to get the Congress to put a patch or legislation to stop that Medicare cut into that must-pass legislation. So I'm going to tell you to text the word Medicare to the number 345345. And if you text Medicare to the number 345345, uh, you'll get a, nothing major is going to happen. You just get a link back by text and it's an easy pre-written uh, pre letter. You can fill out a couple of um, boxes about where you live and your name and it'll send that letter to Congress for you supporting this important legislation. So I want everybody to do that ASAP. Well, thank you. <laughs> I think it's it's really important for us to be advocates, not only for our patients, but for ourselves. And there's a lot to be said about that. And I know that you see patients in clinical practice, but that this is something you've become passionate about. Is it is it part of the reason that you are in D.C.? <laughs> so I am. I happen to be in D.C., and I also happen to love advocacy. Um, 
everybody in Washington seems to think of Congress as local news, so I'm part of that. But um, you're right, Rachel, we, we advocate for ourselves and our patients and our profession all at the same time. Um, other things I'll tell you that are going on the, on Capitol Hill, um, bills to reform pharmacy benefit managers, PBMs, that are controlling the access to medications and the price of drugs, um, step therapy and prior authorization reform. Bills are advancing. Um, unfortunately, even though they're advancing, they go away as soon as Congress closes up the end of this Congress. So a new Congress will be gaveled in in January, and those bills will have to be reintroduced and, and will hopefully push the ball further that time. Um, but a lot going on in Capitol Hill besides the obvious, besides the elections, and we're always staying involved. Uh, and I'm, I'm really glad to be here at Room now because um, you guys have, have such a wide audience and I'm happy to get the word out about advocacy to, get, to keep people involved. Well, speaking of that, if someone does want to get involved, what should they do? Right. So um, the, the number one easiest way to do this is, is to send an email that's already been written. You can edit it and talk about your stance and your own experiences through ACR's Legislative Action Center. You can literally put in a search engine, ACR Legislative Action Center. Um, texting the uh, Medicare to 345-345 will get you there. Um, and you can write a letter on all of the things I just talked about and more. There's uh, legislation to improve reimbursement for DEXA, um, improving the workforce shortage that's going on by getting more slots for training programs. And you can also sign up to get prompted when there's hot legislation that we need people to send in emails. Um, it doesn't happen very frequently. You're not going to get spammed, but uh, you'll find out if you sign up at the Legislative Action Center about that stuff. I think this is great. Thank you so much, Angus, for your time, for your passion, for your energy, and um, for continuing our rheumatology traditions of making sure we're advocates. I think it's important. So, And I like to always end with what's your Twitter handle, so please follow us. Um, my Twitter handle is at UpToTate. And I'm at Angus Worthing. <laughs> For this and more coverage of um, ACR 2022 from Philly, please follow us on RoomNow.com. Hello, everyone. My name is Yus Yusuf. I'm from uh, Leeds, United Kingdom. I'm reporting for RoomNow uh, for uh, ACR Conference 2022 at Philadelphia. Unfortunately, I won't be able uh, to attend the meeting uh, personally, hence uh, I'm uh, joining and reporting for Room Now uh, through a virtual um, attendee. Um, so today uh, is the official first day of uh, ACR conference. Uh, there have been uh, plenty of uh, uh, data presented. Uh, the one that um, caught my eye, uh, in terms of uh, lupus topic uh, is uh, an abstract uh, title, uh, abstract number 0355. Uh, this uh, is um, a post hoc uh, analysis uh, of a three year study of uh, chlorosporin uh, in class five lupus nephritis uh, trials. Uh, as we all know, um, out of all the uh, clusters in lupus nephritis, uh, class five, uh, which is the membranous nephropathy, is one of the hardest one to treat uh, because the patient often uh, have um, severe proteinuria. Uh, it is it is really important uh, to get uh, the uh, protein urea reduced or back to as normal as we can as soon as possible uh, because this can uh, affect uh, long term outcomes. 
So this uh, study um, is uh, initially from the Aurora uh, 1 trial uh, for 12 months. After that, uh, those patients will then continue in a blinded fashion way for another two years. So it's three years in total. So uh, in these patients, um, uh, so there were 81 patients in total that were reported uh, uh, of this. Um, 30 of them uh, had uh, class uh, five, a uh, pure uh, pure class five nephritis, uh, whereas uh, the other um, remaining uh, have a mixed uh, class five nephritis. Uh, you know, it could be three and five or four and five uh, uh, classes. So they compared um, between two arms. One is um, the valclosporin and the standard, standard therapy uh, versus um, standard therapy uh, plus uh, placebo. Um, so uh, at, at uh, 36 months follow-up, uh, interestingly, uh, there's more uh, sort of, uh, the, the, the patient uh, who achieve um, reduction uh, of urine proteinuria uh, from uh, so in three gram uh, to less than uh, 0.5 milli uh, milligram uh, uh, proteinuria uh, was a lot faster uh, in the vocalosporin group compared to the uh, standard therapy. Uh, so the median times uh, were uh, three and a half months uh, for the vocalosporin group uh, and also um, eight months uh, for um, uh, the, the standard therapy. Uh, also, uh, th when they look into broader picture, if they com uh, if they analyze uh, the the mixed classes together, uh, still um, the median time is uh, three months uh, for uh, the vocalosporin group, uh, whereas uh, for the standard therapy it was quite a long, um, around sort of fifteen to sixteen months. So uh, and uh, importantly, people were talking about so one is proteinuria, but how about the renal function? Um, so the studies also show that uh, in um, class five uh, lupus nephritis, uh, the EGFR was maintained throughout uh, for three years. So this is really uh, important data um, to show uh, that the vocalosporin uh, also works uh, effectively uh, in this particular type uh, of uh, lupus nephritis, which is uh, uh, you know, resistant, seem to uh, resistant to therapy. Um, how this um, will um, affect our uh, clinical implications? Um, so, so for countries uh, who can uh, get access to vocalosporin. So this is quite a good, this is really good news uh, to improve uh, outcomes of our patients. Uh, however, uh, for uh, those countries, uh, you know, for which uh, vocalosporin, uh, there is no access to it, uh, particularly in terms of, um, you know, fun uh, funding wise, because it's quite expensive. So maybe we probably uh, would think of uh, trying to substitute uh, a different calcineurin inhibitor in these patients who have really heavy proteinuria before, you know, try to get them stabilized, lower them quickly before we then uh, embark them with other uh, immunosuppressive therapy uh, that is available uh, on, on in India countries. So uh, I hope um, um, you find that um, summary uh, interesting uh, and useful for clinical practice. Uh, you can uh, follow me uh, uh, on my Twitter handle, U6Yusuf, uh, and follow uh, Room Now for more coverage uh, through uh, YouTube's uh, uh, tweet, uh, Twitter uh, and uh, uh, LinkedIn. Bye-bye. Hi, my name is Akil Sood, reporting for Room Now at ACR22. 
Today I want to talk about Abstract 1162, Microbiome and AXPA. The microbiome is a collection of viruses, bacteria, and fungi in the GI tract that are essential for the control of inflammation. Changes in the microbiome have been implicated in rheumatic inflammatory conditions. And this leads to the question, does direct control of inflammation lead to changes in the microbiome? Abstract 1162 seeks to answer this question. They identified a group of patients with AXPA who were about to start biologic treatment. Stool samples were collected prior to starting treatment, and stool samples were collected one year after treatment, and the results were compared to a control group. And the results were impressive. They found that after one year of treatment with biologics, patients with AXPA had similar changes in the microbiome to the control group. In addition, they found significant strains in the microbiome of AXPA patients that were not noted in the control group. So what can we take from this? The microbiome may be used as a marker for response to treatment in patients with AXPA. It can also be used potentially as a marker for disease in AXPA. My name is Akil Sood, reporting for now at ACR22. Thank you. Hello everyone, this is Aurélie Nage from Glasgow, reporting live from Philly for Run Now. I have seen quite a few exciting um, studies today and there's one that I really wanted to share with you. So it's basically um, num abstract number 402 by Ogdi et al. Um, and they basically looked into opioids prescription in patients with ankylosing spondylitis and psoriatic arthritis um, and how this, how this was impacting the medical costs and the need for uh, medical care in general. So um, first finding that I thought was quite interesting, so they looked at 800 plus patients in the forward um, database um, for rheumatic disease, which is in, um, uh, in the US. And um, the first thing that kind of shocked me was that one patient out of five was consuming opioids on a regular basis. Um, I think first of all it's quite interesting because I think the way it relates to other countries um, it can be a bit different. Um, but obviously patients that were on um, opioid drugs were more likely to have you know, more comorbidities, they were smoking more, they had higher disease activity, but also, and it, it makes sense, they had higher healthcare consumption, else uh, medical costs were higher, more uh, visits as well. And if you look specifically into the PSA um, a portion of the patients, 33% of uh, visits were occurring more often annually in the context of um, you know, patients. And also, obviously, the costs were higher for both PSA and ankylosing spondylitis patients. So this whole makes sense, but for me the question really is, does that relate to a population of patients that have more severe disease? Because you know, more comorbidities, higher disease activity, and then obviously more pain, and because of that more opioids. Or are these patients basically prescribed opioids and therefore have more comorbidities and therefore more complications? So I think I would be quite interested to see these numbers in different countries. Um, and I think this is um, obviously something that warrants further research. Um, this was Aurélie Najm for RemNow. Uh, tune in on RemNow for more content and um, see you soon. Hi everyone, back at the ACR 2022 Convergence here in the historical city of Philadelphia. I'm Dr. Janet Pope, or at Janet Burdope, here reporting as a room reporter at RemNow. 
I'd like to talk about switching from a JAK inhibitor to something else when a patient has rheumatoid arthritis. So these are data from the OPAL database. So this is abstract number 0274. The cool thing about the OPAL database is it's data extracted from the electronic medical records of the rheumatologist in Australia. Most are participating and the patient either says, no, I don't consent or the data can go. So it's a better way of obtaining consent because it's a dissent or you get the data. So they have a large database. And what they have looked at is 5,900 patients with rheumatoid arthritis who have been treated with a JAK inhibitor. So what they find, all the jacks so far released in Australia have about the same retention. The medium retention is about three years. Um, they also found that 30% uh, or one in three patients go from a jack, an RA, to another jack. What they find when they switch, they found like all the other drugs when we switch within class that they can be helpful, but a little bit less retention and a little bit less of a high DAS uh, response. So you can go jack to jack, you can get a good retention, you can get a good response, but your first is uh, the best. And that's true with the other uh, um, TNFs and everything as well. What is my take home though? My take home message is I think we need randomized controlled trials that say if you're using first line jack as an advanced therapy, should we randomize patients to jack to jack or jack to other MOA? And then we'd really get the answer on the best durability and the best deep response uh, is within class or outside of class or any of the above. So I hope you'll look forward to other reports from me and have a great day. Thank you. Hi, I'm Dr. Julian Segan from Melbourne, Australia. I'm reporting to you from Room Now. Uh, we're at the ACR Convergence in 2022 in sunny Philadelphia. So I'm here with Dr. Brian England. Uh, I wanted to interview uh, Brian about uh, his abstract 0245, the influence of forced vital capacity impairment on treatment selection and outcomes in rheumatoid arthritis associated interstitial lung disease in patients initiating a biologic or targeted synthetic DMARD. Thank you for coming on, uh, Dr. England. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Happy to be here, back in person. Very exciting, isn't it? Yes, it is. <laughs> yeah, so could you tell us a bit about the, uh, the main findings of the abstract? Yeah, so, you know, the abstract really gets us this idea of how should we manage patients with rheumatoid arthritis associated interstitial lung disease. It's a very challenging population, as you're well aware of, to take care of. We don't have a lot of data to guide us. And so really the premise behind the abstract is, is, is one of the reasons that we don't have a lot of data because we don't know which therapies to choose, you know, which of our immunomodulatory therapies might be best for these patients. And we really wanted to try and get at the question of, well, what's driving both the choice of which therapy we should give these patients, as well as what's driving the outcomes after these patients receive advanced immunomodulatory therapies. So utilizing uh, national VA data over a large period of time, we looked at what the predictors were of either receiving a non-TNF or JAK inhibitor versus a TNF inhibitor in people who have RAILD. Then we looked at what the outcomes were afterwards, what things predicted whether they were in the hospital, what things predicted whether they ended up dying over those few years after initiating that therapy. And the key thing that we really wanted to look at that studies haven't looked at such so far is the severity of their ILD. And we know a great surrogate marker of their ILD severity is their force vital capacity. And so we extracted force vital capacity measurements out of the electronic health record. Uh, some of it was available, some of it we had to use natural language processing to extract out. And what we found was that the force vital capacity, as we might expect, is highly predictive of their outcomes. It predicted people going to the hospital for a respiratory complaint. It predicted people dying after they'd initiated an advanced therapy. 
But what's a little bit surprising was that forced vital capacity severity was not a strong predictor of which therapy people were getting. And I think that's a little bit eye-opening to this idea that what we clearly know that how severe your ILD is is going to impact whether or not you live or die. But we still don't know whether or not that means we should treat you differently. So there's clearly a lot of work to be done to figure out how to best treat these patients. So why do you think that severity of the ILD didn't predict uh, the treatment choices? Is it the fact that we don't know how to treat this disease? Is it, is it, are there other factors like uh, availability of certain medications with insurance coverage? Yeah, I think it's both. I think absolutely it's both. You know, we don't have any clinical trial data of our immunomodulatory therapies and RAILD. And so that's a, that's a huge gap that we need to solve going forward. But the other piece is exactly that. You know, so when we don't have that data, what drives our treatment decisions is the things we have. So when we looked at our data, it was, yeah, more current time periods where we had more options, we were more likely to go to a non-TNF or a JAK. You know, if people had had, you know, numerous prior biologic therapies, they were more likely to end up on a non-TNF. Kind of, you know, the severity of their RA, their articular disease, pushed people that way. So um, I guess one of the questions I had based on the mortality and the outcome data was, uh, do you think that the treatment actually influenced some of the respiratory-related hospitalizations and some of the mortality, or do you think that that was, uh, that was independent or even perhaps protective like some of the methotrexate data? Yes. I think all of those above. That's a great question, right? Yep. You know, absolutely. I think that, uh, you know, we know there are some complications that can happen. You know, every therapy has been implicated for drug-induced pneumonitis. We know these are immunomodulatory therapies. And what's the big infection we worry about in people with RAILD? Well, it's pneumonia, right? Someone gets a pneumonia who's already got severe parenchymal damage in their lungs. It can be devastating. So I think there's definitely the potential for badness with these therapies. Now, whether or not there's benefit from them, that remains to be determined. As we both have talked before, you know, there's a lot of uncontrolled studies that suggest you know, the vast majority of people with RALD who initiate these advanced therapies are either stable or maybe even have a little bit of improvement. But what's lacking is that comparative data. You know? What's lacking is accounting for how severe their articular disease is, how severe their interstitial lung disease is. If we compare these therapies, which therapies are patients going to do better with? You know? And we don't have that clinical trial data. We don't even have that comparative observational data for the most part. Yeah, so that leads me on to really the elephant in the room. How do we get that data? We, I think it's probably unlikely that we're going to have big phase three trials. So how do we get the data to actually answer those questions? Well, I think that's where we have to look at the real world, right? What's happening in the real world? Have we treated enough people with these therapies in the real world that we can now look back and, you know, use pharmacoepidemiologic principles and study designs to try and tease that apart. And this study is really a first step towards doing that. First step is understanding what's driving treatment selection, what's driving treatment outcomes. And now that we know that information, you know, let's simulate a randomized controlled trial with real-world data. Yeah. And a final question. My colleagues at home would probably kill me if I didn't ask one of the experts. What are your go-to drugs based on your clinical experience or even some of the, the, um, the low levels of data? What are your go-to therapies for RAILD? Well, it depends. You know, I would say that, you know, there's not one that is so good that blanket for all RAILD patients I'd head this way. The first step is really taking a detailed assessment of what is this person's RAILD, right? It's not just their lungs. These people have articular disease. And so it's, it's doing a full assessment of what is the systemic nature of their disease, what organs are being involved, uh, how is it impacting their quality of life and what they want to function, and from that kind of tailoring you know, the medication selection. Um, you know, oftentimes for people who are on conventional therapies, you know, azathioprine is a reasonable option to consider. Uh, for people who are, you know, requiring biologic therapies, uh, you know, certainly we use plenty of uh, rituximab, um, 
but it really just, it's patient by patient at this point, and there's no data to drive it. It's all experience. So to all the people at home, I'm sorry that we don't have a better answer, but hopefully Dr. England will come up with a, with a better answer with more time and more data. So I just want to thank Dr. England again for his time and expertise. Uh, really interesting uh, and, uh, topic and uh, very amazing abstract. Uh, so thank you for your time. Well, thanks so much for having me. So I'm Julian Segan for, for Room Now, and uh, join us uh, for more coverage of the ACR 2022 in Philadelphia. Hi, I'm Dr. Katherine Sims covering the ACR 22 in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania for Room Now. And today we're going to talk about the impact of upacitinib versus adalidumab in psoriatic arthritis using the RAPID-3. This is abstract 0192 from Dr. Laura Coates at the University of Oxford. And this study is a post hoc analysis from the double blind select psoriatic arthritis one trial. And what they did is included patients who had been intolerant or uh, had an inadequate response to more than one biologic or sorry, non-biologic DMARD. They received upacitinib 15 or 30 milligrams per day or adalidumab 40 milligrams every two weeks or they were placed in a placebo group. The placebo group was then switched to upacitinib 15 milligrams or 30 milligrams at week 24. The RAPID-3 is calculated using pain scores, patients' global assessment of disease activity, and hack di scores. And these were assessed through week 56. 1,200 patients were included in this study, and patients on upacitinib actually showed greater improvement from their baseline RAPID-3 versus adalidumab at all visits from weeks 15 to 56. By week 56, half of patients on either therapy were either in remission or low activity based off their RAPID-3, which is a wonderful response, but RAPID-3 scores were significantly better in patients on upacitinib 15 milligrams per day. So the takeaway point from this study is that upacitinib 15 milligrams per day led to greater improvements in the RAPID-3 over placebo over a 56-week period. And there were greater improvements over uh, adalidumab from week 16 to 56.